Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, welcome back my friend Aparna Nanshurla. Aparna has a long list of credits. It's amazing to even have her take the time to be here. But some of her credits include, you can hear her as the voice of Moon on The Fox's The Great North, or you may have heard Aparna as the voice of Hollyhock on BoJack Horseman. You can watch Aparna in The Drop on Hulu. She has a half-hour special on Netflix. Late Night Set with Stephen Colbert. She was also chosen as one of Variety's top 10 comics to watch and one of the 50 funniest people right now by Rolling Stones. And we agree. Her book, Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome, is currently available where books are sold. Go get a Parna's book. Also, welcome back, Alvin Irby. Alvin is founder and chief reading inspirer at Barbershop Book, a literacy program that creates child-friendly reading spaces in barbershops and provides early literacy training to barbers. Irby's popular TED Talk, How to Inspire Every Child to Be a Lifelong Reader, has been viewed over one million times. His debut children's book, Gross Greg, combines Irby's passion for early literacy and comedy and is available where books are sold. And his comedy album, Really Dense, is also available. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or a donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage every Monday. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, tank tops, all available. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Saturdays on my YouTube channel, I go live with David Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands be nice and black lives matter i've got two comedians who also write books it's an amazing show that i can't wait for you to hear i got a parna Nanchurla, or for me, I call her my Aparni, and Alvin Irby, I always give him shit, he can take it, cause he's got some good stock tips, <laughs> woo hoo hoo yeah, welcome everybody. Thank you, Thank what you. a wonderful I, I, intro. Uh, right? Intro song. Yeah, I know. Is that the thing now? Is that? Oh, I love it. I love it. You sing yeah. for every podcast? You sing it? Oh, wow. That is. This was my first with the singing intro. Me too. This is special. I know. It's new. <laughs> it's really also, fun. I don't know if I've heard you sing. You know, this is. That's what I was going to say. I, I don't think I have either. You have a beautiful voice. Thank you, Aparna. And thank you both for being so supportive. I won't say which comic, but she knows who she is. <laughs> Pat Brown. Pat oh. Brown was hating on my singing. Oh. She was like, 
I think she doesn't like change. Because <laughs> I started off the show different and she was like, what's happening? <laughs> but I love it. Like, I want to do a collage of everyone who like grooves to it and then have Pat Brown in the corner going. She gives you the mean mug. <laughs> she's always, Great. she's like you, Alvin. She's it's like, always giving me shit. <laughs> so I am so excited, though, for this episode today because you're both so much fun. I've known both of you for a very long time and you both are doing amazing work with literacy, actually, and books. And Aparna, I'll start with you because Aparna, I remember when you were writing the book, I remember how stressful it was. How does it feel like as a comedian to just, did you take a break to write the book or was it like you did it simultaneously? Look at that big word I just threw at you. (laughs) No, I had to take a break. Like it took me, I think all told, it took me three and a half years to write it. And I figured out pretty quickly after I started writing it, that was really hard for me to write it and do stand up at the same time. So I really took a break from performing while I was writing it. I think partly because it was just about some kind of like more vulnerable issues around like my own insecurity with like performing and with like anxiety and depression and like body image and so many things that I think opened up some raw layers in me. And I think it was it was a little too much to try to do that and and then go on stage at night and be like, do you like me? <laughs> Please <laughs> like me. <laughs> And the book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. Mm. Go out and buy it. And I find that this is so interesting being that Aparna, I've always, I've been a fan of yours, like as a comedian. Like, uh, you know, Alvin, I support you too. (laughs) (laughs) You can have multiple fans. Yeah, yeah. But Aparna is as a younger comedian coming up that I saw, I was learning from her, mm. which was rare for me. Uh, mostly because Aparna always seemed, and it's that's what's so interesting that you're writing this book about imposter syndrome. Because for me, I always thought you had so much under control. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the illusion I like to... <laughs> to carry around me. But I mean, I think it is common though. Like the people who experience imposter syndrome, like very often aren't the people you would guess are like struggling because they're they're usually like kind of perfectionists or like overachievers or they're just like constantly doing because I think they're so worried about like the, you know, one, one shoe dropping or like something, something going awry or just being found out. So it just like makes you continually just kind of, drive forward without stopping to even be like, wait, how am I doing? Is this okay? Like, am I okay? Like, it it feels like you get really caught up in like kind of other people's perception of you or something. And then on the flip side, you have all these people who you wish they would stop and wonder, (laughs) like, should I really be saying or doing this? And they are just... 3,000% confident and just Mm -hmm. wrong or crazy or inappropriate. So, I mean, it is something. It is something. Now, I'm going to ask. That was good, Alvin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, Alvin makes a good point because I did learn when I was writing the book, it's like real imposters 
are never feel like they are. Like they're they're very convinced of their own hype. So the fact okay. that if you feel like one, it means you probably aren't one because the ones who are really good at what they do, they think they're really good at what they but do. But you know, the, the thing about that, I was talking to an actor recently and I was talking to him about how I took an acting class and I learned very quickly, I didn't like the way it made me feel you know, because it was like, you know, the, t- the class was like, you don't act angry. You have to be angry. And, you know, and he was talking about how, yeah, the, ba- the brain can't distinguish between whether you're acting sad or acting mad or whether it's really happening. And so I can imagine, like, if you don't feel confident, you don't feel like you mm. can do it, like whether or not that's actually the case. In some ways, I imagine like the brain can't distinguish, you know, for us right. sometimes, and we can manifest our own anxiety in some way, you know, and it doesn't make it any less real, whether or not, you know, in the world, we're really not doing well, or it's not, you know, I, I have, I try to check myself sometimes. And it's not always easy where I'm like, okay, is this, is the sky really falling? Or am I just like, like, is it really that, that serious? And it often takes someone outside of me, <laughs> Mm-hmm. To offer perspective, like pause, look at where you were, look at where you are. I can't always, it's not always easy for me to step outside of myself sometimes to see their so, perspective. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what I'm going to ask you, Aparna, is what made you want to write this book in particular? Was it that you had this feeling and you were like, I need to get it out? Or was it that the agents were like, you got to write a book? (laughs) And you're like, okay, let me think about a title. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I would say it's more the former. Like I, it had been something I'd been struggling with from the beginning of my career, but then it it almost felt like the more success or opportunities I got, the worse the Mm self-doubt got. So I think that made me want to kind of, um, like Alvin was saying, I kind of pause and check myself and be like, wait, why Why is this the case? Like I kind of thought once I checked off X, Y, and Z, like I would be more confident or like feel, you know, more deserving of success or something. It felt like the opposite was happening. So I think that made me want to kind of investigate it more. But I had been lucky enough where, where um, you know, people had approached me before about like, have you ever thought about writing a book? It kind of felt like, Uh, maybe the interest was there of me writing a book. And then I just had a certain thing I was fascinated by at the time to want to explore it more. It's so fascinating because I had Sarah Cooper on last week and she talks about imposter syndrome as well. And she's writing a book as well. And it's like a similar thing. And I'll ask you the same question I asked her was while you were checking all the boxes of things that you were doing, because she, for her, I think it was like really overnight, right? Yes, yes. And overwhelming. And she talks about how she just didn't feel like she was herself in a place that was ready for her her body, like everything in her life, right? Mm. I'll ask this to you as well, because we're a Friends Like Us podcast. What friends were there for you during this time when you had like this sort of syndrome happening with the success? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tr- 
tricky too, I realized with being in a career of uh, where I am friends with a lot of performers or like we're on similar career tracks where I get very caught up in my head of like, is my problem going to like raise some sort of insecurity in you? Like me complaining about like some opportunity I have, like, is that going to make you feel bad? You don't have that. Like, so sometimes I feel like I have to kind of go outside the performer bubble to, to vent to people because I just get worried about other people maybe then comparing themselves to me because I have such a issue with like comparing myself to other people. Um, so it does make it a little tricky sometimes when you're, yeah, when a lot of your other friends are also like in the same career path. Yeah. Zainab had mentioned like it had helped her to have like mentors. Mm, Did you mm-hmm. have any mentors? I mean, I always feel like this is the thing. I always watch you a Parna. You always seem to have it like you were seemed to be like a solo artist, just sort of <laughs> in this space with, um, with friends, but. I, I always feel like you didn't need a mentor. I could be wrong about that, though. No, I would love a mentor. Like, if anyone is listening <laughs> and wants to mentor me, I would love a mentor. I'm always so jealous when people are like, well, I was talking with my mentor, and I was like, how do I get one? I want one. Yeah, <laughs> It's out there now. I feel you on that. I feel you on that. Now, I looking at my questions. I've always thought of you as quiet, but in control. <laughs> Now, and it says here, yeah, I'm reading about how you've thought about quitting mm-hmm. and I have myself several times, right? So how many times have you thought about quitting and what brings you back to comedy specifically? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like I still actively wrestle with that because I don't know. I don't know if sometimes just the fantasy of quitting is like, oh, I could always just leave, you know, like I could always just go do something else. But then I can't, like if I try to think past that, like what would I do? Like my fantasy is I'll go move to a small town and work in a bookstore and then my life will be so much easier and less complicated. But then if I think, you know, further past that, then it starts to be like, okay, but then, you know, will I have enough money to go to therapy or whatever? Then it starts getting too complicated, but it is nice to just have that at least escape hatch in your brain. Like I could always just leave this all behind, but yeah, I don't know if I actually have any other skills at this point. (laughs) I would say that's probably all. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're an author. (laughs) Both of you. Yeah. I mean, like, Alvin, I'll ask you that question, too. Have you had that moment where you were like, I should just cause quit doing stand-up and just be a full-time barbershop books guy? I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I just think, you know what? You know, if what if I just taught first grade somewhere? Like, mm. no, I don't have, you know, don't have payroll, don't have... You know, to go re- fundraise, to try to get grants, don't have to like hustle and bustle. But then I also remember when I told my, when I was teaching and I told the principals at the time, I came back from winter break and I said to them, after the school year ends, I won't be returning. And I remember at that time I was working like 11 hour days. I would come home exhausted. I didn't have the time or energy to do stand up or to write many of the things that I felt like gave me like not even just purpose, but like like energy and gave me like made me feel good. And I told them, you know, I feel like 
this situation is stealing contributions that I'm supposed to be making to the world. Like, that's what I told my principals when I was, that I was going to be leaving. And I didn't know I was going to start barbershop books at the time. I didn't know. I just knew that what I was doing at that time wasn't sustainable for my soul. And I'm also one of those people that like, I don't like the idea of shoulda, coulda, wouldas and like wondering what would have happened had I decided that I wanted to pursue this thing that kind of was important to me. And I think part of it is honestly, I had trauma as a kid, like at a young age that led me to reach, I think, some very mature conclusions about life or whatever. But when I was in middle school, I literally had certain kinds of situations where I told myself from this point on every, you know, if I come out of this situation, every day is extra. And it has led me to kind of like, you know, people are like, you've run marathons, you did this or you did this. And like, I think that like, because like literally for me, I was like anything, if I get past this, then it's all extra. And I think that has caused me to kind of, and it doesn't mean that things are easy or I'm not stressed out or overwhelmed or even, you know, feel like, you know, half the time I feel like I have no idea. <laughs> like, you know, everybody else is like, you know, you know, you're doing great and this or that. But like I do, you know, also have times where, you know, the confident isn't on 100 or a thousand. So this is a good place to ask a partner, like, what have you done to sort of battle mental health or help mental health. And this was the first time that I even, I didn't know you were on medication. I didn't know you were suffering from depression and anxiety at such level. I read the New York Times article and it was like, I was like, oh my goodness. Now sharing that for you, is it difficult to share? Is it also like, what's your favorite drug? No. Because <laughs> I, I noticed, I loved your joke about like how this one is causing dry mouth and... Yeah, I mean, I feel like I pretty I'm pretty open about talking about it and I don't know, I don't know what that is, like what that instinct necessarily is. I think maybe it's because I was diagnosed with depression when I was 19 and before that I didn't really have any language or way to explain like how I felt a lot of the time, so it was almost a relief to be given like sort of an answer in that mm -hmm. sense. So, I think maybe I that from then on approached it as like, oh, I don't want to like suppress this because I have for most of my life and it feels like it did not work for me. So I feel like in that sense, I've been very comfortable talking about those things kind of openly. Um, but yeah, I've also learned, especially in writing the book, but even before that with talking about like depression, anxiety in my standup, like talking about it on stage or like with other people is still like very different from like handling it on, you know, in your own life. Like me, you know, telling jokes about anxiety and depression is not me managing it on my own. Like that's therapy, medication, like taking care of my body. Yeah. Like I feel like early on I was sort of conflating the two. I was like, oh yeah, I'm making jokes about it. And this is like, great. I'm like very upfront about everything. And, mm -hmm. but yeah, I feel like the two are very separate and I have to like constantly remind myself of that. I was reading how you do like a finger tap, mm -hmm. um, which I've never seen you do this. Is that something that you still do? And, or is it, 
what are your techniques for relaxing before you go on stage? Which is something I would never ask a comedian. But, you know, I didn't know that you... I read that and I was like, I've never seen you... I don't know what the finger tap is. But yeah, I mean, I usually do it at home before I, I'm at the show or like I'll do it in the bathroom or something at the venue. But um, yeah, it's just sort of like an acupressure technique where you're kind of like tapping different parts of your face and body and kind of just trying to release some of the, I guess, mm-hmm. thoughts that are maybe causing the anxiety. Like whether it's like, oh, people are not going to like me or I'm like, I'm not going to remember what I'm saying or I don't know what I'm doing. Like you kind of are tapping different points as you're saying those thoughts, but then you're replacing them with more calming thoughts where, you know, people, I know what I'm doing. I've been here before. People people are here to see me because they support me. Like that sort of thing where you're kind of trying to re reframe your brain from this panic state to something a little more manageable or grounded or just, you know, something where you feel more secure and like be uh, less, yeah, just scared. And then are there any other techniques that you use? Do you, is the, I love that. Like, where do you tap? Do you tap like just... There, I mean, I learned it from a YouTube video, which I don't know. Oh, wow. I don't know if I should there just tell people, go on YouTube and learn it. But it is just like <laughs> nine different points. I think like one is like, you know, the side of your wrist. And then it's like a couple different points on your face. And then like, I think one on your chest, one on like the side, like kind of under your armpit and then top of your head. But it's like nine points total. Wow. Wow. And it really helps. It does. I mean, I really was skeptical because I was like, why would this help when I like, you know, years of therapy have done nothing. But I, yeah, for some reason it helps me. I think I'm very, when I'm anxious, I'm very disconnected from my body and it's sort of a way for me to re-remember I have a body. And and so that, that it really helps me. I could see why some therapists might not want to share the tips about how you could press and save some money a few times. You still got to go. So maybe, you know, you save two over the course of the year. Totally. <laughs> do you do anything, Alvin, to relax before you... Like, because Alvin's... He was nominated as um, one of the CNN heroes for his work on Barbershop Books. Congratulations. So cool. Congratulations. I don't know. So I'll ask you, Alvin, like with that... Did you have any anxiety or did was it just like this was easy for you, easier than stand up or no. is there you know a difference? I mean, honestly, I was just last week given a, like a keynote at a conference that wasn't about education, right? It was like a in, in the, the National African American Insurance, you know, Association and I think because I feel so, you know, I taught kindergarten, I taught first grade, I'm so comfortable talking to librarians, talking to educators. And so for so they're like, oh, Alvin, say a few words. And it is a different thing when it's like, well, are they going to think that what I have to say is relevant or engaging? But then, you know, once the, I got a laugh, you know, and then it's like, OK, this is like, you know, how I've given talks before. This isn't, you know, something that's different. But one thing I can say is like, you know, even with like, I mean, even with all the different accomplishments and everything that Barbershop Books has had, all the amazing things that are still to be done. There are certain things that I think have been very sticky and not maybe in the good in a good way. And one of the things that sticks with me, there was a really amazing uh, nonprofit organization that was focused on helping black boys and black young men. 
And they had, I mean, millions of dollars flowing to their organization. And then they closed. Mm. I participated in some of their convenings. And so for me, and I hear sometimes people, sometimes often not uh, leaders of color, kind of talking about their work as if the assumption is that it's always going to be there. And so for me, I have in the back of my head, I know an organization, one that was doing, you know, they weren't putting books in barbershops, but they were helping black boys and they had way more money than we ever had. And they closed down. And so I think I don't have the luxury to just feel like just because we're doing great work or because we're having an impact that it's just going to continue. And so maybe that puts unnatural or artificial stress and pressure on me. But I also know that like we have to fundraise every day, every week, every month. And no, I don't have some endowment or some huge donor that's just going to make sure we have payroll if we don't have, you know, and so do feel like it's not made up or artificial, but I do think that's probably where anxiety comes in. It's like, well, maybe it is at this level, but maybe I'm bringing it to 10, you know? Um, But I try, I try to surround myself with people who care about me and who remind me because I think my tendency is to sometimes want to go into myself or be alone. And I think that if I'm around people who really genuinely not only care about me, but care about the work, they will speak encouragement or inspiration to me to kind of just remind me. Cause I think, you know, you do need, you do need reminders. And I think, especially when you care, you know, I think, you know, when you care so much about something, whether it's stand up, whether it's whatever, having people pull you aside and say something to you, even when things aren't going well. And I think about it all the time. I remember, you know, one time I was bombing somewhere and Brandon, Marshall Brandon was like, uh, Alvin, uh, I've been doing comedy a minute and I still mix the old with the new, right? Because he had seen me do well. And then he saw, you know, I, I was still young, but I think I just got so sick of doing my same jokes and I got so good at it that I got way more confident So I was like, I'm going up and I'm going to just give them all this new material. And then they responded like I gave them all that new material. (laughs) But but the fact that he pulled me aside and even felt like I would be receptive or willing to hear what he had to say, I think was just encouraging Um, because, you, you know, sometimes if you take an L, you know, Comedians are just like, oh, you know, like I don't even want, I don't want that to that stink to kind of rub <laughs> off on 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 me, you yeah, know. No, I hear you. I think that anxiety in comedy is it's funny because I always get that question. Do you still get nervous? Like people mm-hmm. always oh, ask me that, and a lot of times I say no, <laughs> um, because I. The thing is, is there's so many sets when you're in the city that you're doing every night that you're like, oh, I've was it nervous? I was just trying to get there on time. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. Tr- like you said, trying to make sure I try a new joke or whatever it is. And I think that's where my nerves come in is when I'm trying a new joke mm. or if I'm in a new space. And a lot of times, I guess the way I challenge myself is by not getting too comfortable. That's my new thing. 
lately is if I'm too comfortable, like I was telling a partner, Alvin, you weren't here before we started, but I was telling a partner about the serums and the facial creams <laughs> and how as you get older, you have to kind of like beat up your face for it to stay stay young and alive so it's like that the, the body is like going i want to take a nap constantly in every part in forms of the body the whole body's like i'm done and so as an older comic it oftentimes i do feel like and i'm seeing this with a lot of older comics that their anxiety is about not being relevant anymore mm. right or not being or being too comfortable like so Something I did recently, which is take myself out of the comfort situation and sort of like what I'm doing to my face is like, like waking it up. So I started doing other rooms. Mm. And I don't know, like Aparna, one of the things that stood out to me that I always loved about you was that you chose your space and you always had a self-awareness that I thought, and, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, that I thought always helped you with knowing what to do with yourself. Like oh, you mean like in terms of like what venues I would play or yeah and in like cuz I always notice like you took time out to say okay I don't want to do that scene. And that really helped you. So when you're at the highest point of your career, what was I guess my question is I'm trying to phrase it right is what was the choice that you made? that sort of, that self-awareness was like, okay, I'm having this high peak of anxiety. I need to do this for myself right now. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I just hit a wall with performing where the anxiety got so bad that I was like, I don't think I'm doing myself a service or the audience a service by just trying to like push through this and pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, even though I'm going to like disappoint a lot of people, like I canceled a very big tour and like I knew that it was not going to be, you know, a lot of people are going to be mad and stuff, but I just, it felt like that sort of, you know, rock bottom where you're like, I can't keep doing it this way. Like it's not sustainable and I'm, yeah, it's sort of the sort of the same thing, like where when you're having a bad set and you're like, I'm not having fun, you're not having fun. Who is this for at this point? <laughs> like, this is not working for anyone. So yeah, I had to like reassess, but I really didn't, like when I kind of took a step back from performing, I really kind of wasn't like, okay, you're going to take a break and you're going to come back. I really kind of did leave it open of like, if you never want to do it again, maybe that's okay. Like maybe you just need to figure something else out. So I, I kind of left it very open-ended when I, when I stepped away from it, just because it felt like that expectation or that pressure to be like, yes, but people, you know, want this or like, you're going to let people down. Like that felt like it had been driving me for so long that it felt like, oh, you cannot live your whole life by just based on like not letting other people down. Ooh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And having to, like, making that decision to not go on tour is such a big moment for you because you have to tell people who want to make money off of you, no. (laughs) (laughs) How did they receive it? Were they like, 
Were they cool? They were they were supportive. I think it was like, you know, a negotiation of like, oh, can you still do some of the dates? And then it was like, no, <laughs> I'm an all or nothing gal. <laughs> you get so you get all me or you get none of me. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was pretty scary. I I, I yeah. feel like I often have that this problem with my reps where it's like they work for you and I always forget that. I'm always like, but what if they don't want me anymore? <laughs> but it, but it's such a great, powerful move. Yeah. Like, do you ever, like, I think, I mean, I'm trying to be like therapists now, right? <laughs> but I think this is a moment to actually celebrate is that you have the ability, and I've watched you, Aparna, throughout the years, you have the ability to make choices that a lot of people don't have. They'll still suffer through that tour and be miserable. And you took yourself out and said, mm -mm -mm, I know what I need. Like, yeah, that's why I'm a fan of you. A hundred percent. I think that's also like, just for me, at least by virtue of getting older, you're just like, oh, I only have so much time on this planet. Like, am I really going to just keep doing things for other people? Like, that's not... I like I yeah like I have only so many years left like let me like do something for myself for once absolutely I had that feeling you remind me every I always have a little Aparna on my show <laughs> <laughs> you should have a doll by the way That's, Aparna a party doll that sounds so horrifying <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always like what would Aparna do because it's like there are times when I'm really not happy with the club scene, mm, let's say. Mm -hmm. And like you and, oh my God, why am I forgetting her name? Uh, the show that you would do, the show, God, I'm for, the show that you would do in Brooklyn. Oh, Butter um, Boy. Butter Boy, yeah. yeah. When I would do that show for you, that would take me out of the club scene in a way that I love so much. Yeah. And it would feed me. And I would, and a lot of times, like my Irish friend was telling me, she's like, Marina, you said you need something else. And I see you, you you're making these steps to do it. So I'm like, that's yeah. the Aparna on my show. <laughs> <laughs> now, when the pandemic, the pandemic must have been a relief in a sense, or no. No, it kind of was because I, I had just started writing the book before it happened. And then it was like, I took a break from performing. And then it was suddenly like, oh, we're all taking a break from performing <laughs> in solidarity with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Writers Guild must be another like, sort of like. Yeah, that break. was kind of strange because I it was almost the opposite where I feel like I'm sort of trying to figure out what's next now with the book being done. And then it was like, and eh, now we're all on strike. So <laughs> just kidding. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know with the pandemic and like before that, the 2016 election, it just seems like every year there's just so many unpredictable factors now of what's going to happen or like what place people are going to be in with work, with anything, just living. Yes. And so it's hard to even, yeah, like foresee the next six months lately. It is. It's been, it's like one, and then we have for war going. It's, I know. The, I know. These moments of like, well, I keep thinking we're, we're like starting and stopping, starting mm -hmm. and stopping and trying to figure out what pivot or what like, Alvin, you know, we talk about stocks. I was telling a partner that oh, you're yeah. master at stocks, but, you know, just watching the stock market kind of helps. But then you're like, I don't know. <laughs> so, Alvin, I got these questions for you as well. 
what are some of the challenges that you're having now for Barbershop Books? And tell Parner briefly what Barbershop Books does. Yeah, so Barbershop Books is a literacy nonprofit that creates child-friendly reading spaces in Black barbershops across the country and provides early literacy training to barbers. So I was a former kindergarten teacher. And actually, when I taught first grade in the Bronx, I was just, you know, getting a haircut in the barbershop across the street from my school. And one of my students came into the barbershop. You know, he was just sitting there, you know, doing nothing, getting antsy. His mom is like, sit down. And the whole time I'm observing this, all I'm thinking is, he needs to be practicing his reading right now. And I wished I had a children's book to give him, but I didn't. And so it was literally that chance encounter with one of my students that inspired this idea. And now we have over 250 barbershop partners across more than 50 cities, more than 20 states. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, I think for me, you know, it's like I've, there's a barbershop that has our bookshelf two blocks from my house. So You know, I literally sometimes get to walk down the street and randomly see little kids just like sitting there reading, not because cameras are around, but because this is just now what they do when they go to their local barbershop. But then me having the big foundations. Well, why the barbershop? It's like when you see something being transformative, but then you're having to explain it to people who have very limited conception, you know, and I mean, The reality, and this is something I tell myself, is that it really, no matter whether you're a nonprofit or for-profit, you still have to get, you know, you have to get loans if you're a small business. You you still have to try and get, you know, people to fund you, investors, you know, so it's not like nonprofits alone or any in any type of like situation where they're having to convince someone that their idea. I do think that what's frustrating sometimes when you, you know, you listen to like, you know, that dude that his crypto, you know, whatever collapsed. And, you know, to listen to him tell people, well, I, I don't really do the oversight. You know, if you want to invest, you just got to give me money. And then they were like, well, here's two billion. You know, And so to hear people have such a disregard or when you hear crazy things like Trump uses nonprofits money to get a self-portrait. And it's like, I can't even comprehend. Wow. Like I get guilty when people try and treat me to a dinner that's too expensive, because all I can think about is how many books I could buy with like some ridiculously priced meal. So I think that, you know, as a social entrepreneur and as a a black nonprofit leader where I don't have, you know, like we haven't raised, you know, a lot of people are like, well, get the Lindsay Scott money or the, you know, the Scott money we haven't raised over a million dollars. You know, they have cutoff times for some of these huge, you know, funding opportunities. And so I think that's one of the things that I think sometimes can be a little frustrating is that I think sometimes people think, well, like, oh, you got this press, you got this. So like everything is, and it's like, nah, you got to fundraise every day, every week, every month. And I think there's another added pressure when you have payroll. Right. So even though Barbershop Books uh, will be celebrating 10 years and that's an accomplishment this November. Thank you, Marina. You're going to be telling some jokes and making making the people laugh at our 10 year celebration, um, the uh, Museum of the City of New York. But even with all of these amazing accomplishments, it's still like Barbershop Books has not arrived. Right. And because I think of who I am and my pressure to like actually want to do the very best, I continue to push. 
right? So we're building an ad tech platform, right? And we're not a tech company. We're not some kind of venture backed entity, but you know, and I even sometimes was questioning myself, like, should I really even be doing this? Like, Alvin, for real, like y'all put books in barbershops. I know you created a summer program and you saw some impact data, but like, are you doing too much? Like, are you asking mm, too much of yourself? I see. Are you going in the wrong direction? Right, right. Are, or just yeah. are you doing too much? Are you trying to? But then we won a global ed tech competition. Over a thousand learning tools, over 70 countries. And then our Reading So Lit program was one of 32. And so then I'm like, wait, wait, no, Alvin, you're not crazy. You, you're not crazy. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that sometimes... Especially when you, you know, if you allow yourself to compare, it's like, well, yes. we've won a global ed tech competition. I have a TED talk. I have all this, but I still am having to kind of like ask and ask and ask and justify and justify. You know, and there's research to show that black led nonprofits actually get less unrestricted funding, meaning that when someone does give them funding, there's more strings attached. They want to ask mm. for more data. Whereas there may be other, you know, non-black leaders or, or white leaders who may be doing similar work, but are just kind of believed that they're going to use the funding in a way, you know. And so I think that, like, you know, I think I think what stand-up comedy has done to me and what I have to check sometimes is like I feel like over time it's eroded some of the kind of like filters and not that I just, you know, say anything crazy, but I think like it causes you to like see through mm-hmm. some of the things. And like, it's like you develop less of a tolerance of like, it's not that you say everything that you see, but like you see stuff, right. You notice yeah. things in a way that just people walking by or people just moving through life may not see. And I think that that's, that's one of the benefits, right, of, of being a stand-up comedian. But then it's like, I don't know if, uh, how to what extent you all can turn it off. Like, I, I watch things or I see things. I don't, I'm not always able to turn it off. Like, I see, I'm like, that's crazy. I love doing stand-up. And I think, you know, for me, when I am on stage, when I am telling jokes, that is one of those times when like literally it doesn't matter what other stresses or when I'm on stage, I'm telling jokes and they're laughing. Like I'm literally not thinking about all the million and one other things that as soon as I step off stage that come rushing back, you know. That's awesome. And it also probably helps like, with all of the anxiety coming from making barbershop books what it needs to be. And I think it's important that you tell people those challenges oftentimes so that they hear from people like, you know, um, of color who are really need funds. I will agree with you. Like I have seen the certain organizations, they will throw, there is money out there and they will throw a lot of money. I did an organization this week for uh, Silent Spring Institute. It's a wonderful institute of cancer prevention where I hosted it. They raised over $200,000 in one night wow. and it's possible. That's what I'm saying. It's so I wish you luck on that endeavor during a very difficult time when they're taking books and they're also paying attention to what black creatives are doing. Now, Aparna, I want to ask you this. 
how many, because, you know, Hindu culture or. Yeah, I was raised Hindu. Hin- okay, Hindu yeah. culture. Is it typical to talk about these things so openly in a book? And since you are doing this now, have you found that people are responding from Hindu culture? Like, thank you so much for doing this. You're speaking for me. And what is the most, um, I would say, the most amazing thing someone has said to you from your culture about what you're writing in your book right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's me. I do feel lucky in that, like, a lot of young, um, younger, like, brown women, like, South Asian women are often like, oh, when I saw, you know, you doing stand-up or, like, you kind of doing things your own way, that kind of gave me room to you know, have this interest or pursue this path myself. And I like, I don't talk about like identities that, you know, other people are seeing you and like you might represent more than than just yourself to other people. And and I think, uh, yeah, uh, definitely sometimes I feel weird because I think other comics from like marginalized groups seem to be better at embodying that, you know, where they're, they're like, I'm setting an example and I often forget that I'm like not just representing like my own weird brain. And so when you wrote the book, was there anything like, did any young woman come out to you and go, thank you so much for writing this? Or have you had any like feedback from young woman like yourself that's like, you know, I've experienced this and it was hard for me to come out or any. Like a, a lot of ways I used to kind of interface with the public, which was like mainly through social media, I think, which right. is how a lot of us do these days, uh, whether we're in creative fields or not. And I took a big step back from it, um, both while I was writing the book, but then just during the pandemic, it felt like, I don't know, for some reason, hard to manage just all the noise that's always going on on those platforms. And I feel like I never really went back to it in the same way afterwards, like after the book was finished. And only now that I'm having to promote it and stuff, have I really been on the platforms again much. But I realized like I, it's so nice to not have that constant chaos going on in your brain. But then I also feel like the other, the flip side of that is not really getting to interact with fans as much or like getting that, that positive feedback, you know, of like, oh, I really resonate with your work or something. But yeah, for me, it's been kind of a, a overall sacrifice of like, this is better for my mental health to spend less time in these places. But at the same time, it, yeah, the takeaway is maybe that I don't get to like, yeah, hear as much from like, you know, your work really affected me in a positive yeah. way. But yeah, the negative yeah. always sticks out more. So I'm like, yeah. I gotta get well, away. Well, now you're on a, on a book tour. Do you do a Q&A where they get to speak? I haven't been doing Q&As. I've just been doing stand-up and then I sign the book afterwards. And there are just like moments with fans that are very sweet. Well, tell us one, they, tell us one. Well, one that I, I like can't even... Um, like, like a fan just started crying when she like got to the front of the line and she couldn't even talk, which I was just like, I don't know. It just like made my heart like melt. And then her partner had to just like lead her away. And he was like, thank you. Thank you. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even, I know. I like the fact that you can impact people that much. I like, it blows my mind. It is, uh, it is crazy. You know, when, I mean, but that's also part of like, You've had people cry? <laughs> Man, I've had all kinds of of stories over the years of, of, of things. I mean, 
you know, I mean, I have a student, I think next year he's going to be, he was my first grade student. He's graduating from Columbia. You know, is you know, he's graduating from high school and, you know, his mom sends me like a picture, you know, like, like there's just like things where, that's sweet. you know, you realize you, you've, you know, just impacted someone's life or, or you I mean, you just don't know how times you don't even realize you're just going about your way. Um, and it is nice, you know, but to your point about with that, opening it up, there's also the flip side of it. And, you know, you were asking about strategies earlier of how do you kind of beat back the anxiety or how do you keep going or how do you... And for me, I try to be really intentional about protecting my peace and protecting my Mm. joy and, you know, not ever feeling like other people are entitled to my time or attention, especially if they are harming me or, or, you know, I don't feel like they're enriching my life. And I don't mean like that I have to be, you know, getting something from them. But, you know, there are people who their energy is not positive or the, the things they care about or talk about. And I want people to live their life. But I'm also OK with, in some instances, deciding that it's OK for them to live it over there. You know what I mean? The mute button Ugh. is the most powerful button <laughs> Of social media, you have to mute. Mute. People. You know what? I didn't. I didn't. Oh. I don't. You, maybe I you don't, don't use, use it? it. The mute. You got to use uh, it. Got to use it. One thing you made me think about, Perna, when you talked about not really talking about your identity a lot, and one of the things I think about when I think about children's literature, and especially black boys and children's literature. I believe that one of the ways in which white supremacy robs people. Uh, is of their individuality where everybody, you know, a little black boy in a children's book can't just be being a kid because he has to somehow, you know, represent every little black boy everywhere. And if he's doing something quirky or weird, somehow that's a bad thing because he needs to fit some unspoken or explicit expectation that he has to be like, you know, you know, and I think that that's harmful, especially for the quirky kids, for the kids who I crocheted as a kid and it was not normal. It was not normal at all. Wait, hold on. I love that. At what age did you crochet? Well, I've been crocheting for a very long, I guess now, what is it? 31 years. I've been crocheting a long, I mean, Subway, when I first moved to New York City, everybody in my family got a scarf because I was on the subway. It was my first time ever just commuting. So I was just crocheting up a storm on the subway, but I'm much busier and and don't have as much. But it is uh, almost crochet season. So, yeah, it's probably time to whip out the crochet needle and the yarn. Well, I want to go back (laughs) to... I want to go back to this point you're making, which is a very good one. It is one of our articles about how studies show students benefit from diverse books by WTHA CBS Local News. Maria Cade wrote a recent study conducted by First Book, a literacy nonprofit, has highlighted the importance of having a diverse set of books in libraries. The study looked at 450 different classrooms over six months. It showed that classroom libraries stocked with diverse titles resulted in increased time spent reading by students. It also showed that students who had classroom libraries with diverse books have significantly higher 
reading scores. So Alvin, I'm going to ask you the question that, you know, I know you get asked for funding, but has barbershop books increased scores or do you have data on what barbershop books has done for, and, and how, and in that, tell us how many barbershops your books are in. Yeah. So one, definitely want to give a shout out to First Book. We're a part of the diversity. Barbershop Books is a part of the diverse uh, books for all coalition that's housed within First Book. And they have a variety of organizations across the country who they're mobilizing to get diverse books out and to work with publishers to bring the cost. You know, uh, honestly, children's books and especially the popular ones are not cheap. And if you don't have the money, you know, or you don't, you know, have a habit or, or of going to libraries, it can, you know, a lot of kids just literally don't have books at home. But in terms of barbershop books and how we measure our impact, you know, for us, you know, we take our lead from black boys, right? We ask them what books they like. Um, and those are the books that we buy. And, you know, oftentimes the, the books they want to read look different from the books that often get curated for them. Um, and that create tensions because, you know, sometimes adults and, you know, and, and wanting to be well-meaning, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, you know what? I know a book that's similar to this one you want to read that I think is better for you without sometimes even realizing, well, maybe it's not about the character in the book for this particular book. Maybe it's because all their friends are reading it, right? So they want to read and be able to engage. And if you say, well, no, you need to, you know, and I think that there, I think we need to use and more. Oh we yeah. To, that's like, a good like point. my niece, I get it. My niece said, I want a doll, uncle Alvy. And I was like, okay, well, you know, tell me the doll you want. And then she was like, she sent me a white doll. And I was like, well, I will buy you this doll and I will buy you a black doll, mm. right? Oh, right. I see. And okay. and I didn't yeah. tell her no. I'm not gonna buy you this doll. Yeah. I said okay, okay, and let's get you a melanated baby too. And you um, know what, Alvin? Just to into because you know I told you about my niece and how she would say she would laugh at me basically about books because I always say, "What are you reading?" And she go, "What are you reading?" <laughs> She'll come back at me. And she's like really funny. She's a really funny kid. And she would go like, oh, TT. She calls me TT. She goes, TT, Rita, what are you reading? So now it's become a joke. So now it's, but it becomes a joke. And now she's actually reading, right? And like you also said something. I told you I was having troubles getting, I got her a book that has an audio portion with it but an audio portion with it that you can put your voice in so that you're reading the story to them. Yes. Ooh. And it's so cool. Yeah, I wish she I gets the heat. But so here's cool. the thing. I was starting to record it for her and it was in her presence and she's in the back. She's been reading the book so much that she knows how the story mm -hmm. goes. Mm -hmm. So I let her say what she wanted to say while I was reading. So now she just listens. She looks at the book for that so that she could hear us reading together. Powerful. And I think people underestimate the communal and relationship elements. Like for very young children, you know, who, who don't actually know how to decode print yet, their relationship, attitudes, feelings about books have nothing to do with books or print themselves for many children. It's about 
the connections that surround the books, right? They get to curl up with mom or dad. And I'm sure I'm not a brain scientist, but I'm pretty sure some kind of chemicals probably get released in the brain when they are having those, you know, nurturing experiences so that even when the parents or whoever isn't around, books still elicit that type of positive you know, feeling. Um, but in terms of, you know, you asked me about, well, what is the impact of barbershop books on reading? One of the things I try to be very explicit with people about barbershop books is that we are not school, right? Our goal is not to turn barbershops into school or into a tutoring program. Our focus is really on helping and c- cultivating the reading identity of Black boys, you know, creating the type of positive experiences that will help them identify as readers. And then also we provide early literacy training to barbers to give them tips and strategies so that as they are interacting with families, as they're interacting with boys, they're not causing reading trauma because you can be well-meaning and still cause harm or cause trauma. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, but you know, that oath that they take, that's really the way that I think about the reading programming that we have is that even if a strategy is really powerful or impactful, but if it only works in certain hands and in other people's hands, it can do a lot of harm, then I would rather not do it and use strategies that are more accessible and that reduce the chance of a kid developing negative attitudes about reading or about books. What we found with barbershop books is that when we survey barbers, you know, barbershops, new barbershops that have not participated in our program, or maybe they just started, over 90% of the barbers report rarely or never seeing boys read in their barbershops. And after six months of having the bookshelf, having our curated books, 80 to 85% of barbers report seeing boys read daily or almost every day. So, you know, We, in many cases, get to see and witness a real transformation of the space. And a lot of it is not only the barber or only the parents. A lot of it is is self-initiated by the boys themselves. And there's an NYU professor, Professor Susan Newman, who's one of the country's leading literacy researchers. And she did an independent evaluation of the Barbershop Books program in Philadelphia where they use researchers from the local HBCU to come into the barber, black barbershops in Philly to do observations. And they found three key findings that it's in a report on our, on the homepage of our website. But what they found was that black boys in our barbershops in Philly uh, were more likely to be observed reading than doing any other activity. They also found that they were more likely to be observed reading independently than reading with a barber or reading with a parent. And then the last key finding uh, that they, that she found in her evaluation was that black boys were more likely to be able to identify as readers. And so what was interesting is that the control barbershops that didn't have the program, when, when they compared them boys and the number one thing that boys identified as was gamers Then the second thing they identified as were athletes. And then in the barbershop books location, uh, the third thing was readers. And for the other barbershops that didn't have our program, readers was the fifth thing. So, you know, I mean, it was a small sample size, but it really, I think, spoke to 
what I believed was happening, but that I didn't necessarily have, you know, the funding to do, you know, a huge evaluation. That's great. Researcher. Yeah. That's real. That's one. I'm glad you put that out there. So anyone who's listening, please give Alvin your money. Totally. <laughs> now, I want to get into some of this. I, we've already uh, got into one of the hot topics, but I find this just funny, right? <laughs> about Jada Pinkett. I, not that oh. she, but I feel like, I don't know if you guys are with me on this, that every time there's like tragedy, it seems like they throw Jada Pinkett at us. <laughs> like she starts. From- she uh, she is selling a book, That's you true. know, but it's, it's just seems like every time there's we're in the midst of major tragedy, they're like, "How is Jada and Will's <laughs> relationship? Let's go there." <laughs> you know, um, she don't even talk about Will this much. Fans are tired after Jada Pinkett mm. Smith calls Tupac her soulmate in a new interview. In an interview promoting her book, now that she is promoting her book, when asked about whether or not she believed in platonic soulmates during an interview, she responded that she did and believes Tupac to be hers. She suggested that if past lives exist, then she and Tupac have traveled a few together. <laughs> now, as previously... Re- <laughs> They're on the road. Yeah. Previous- <laughs> now, have you been following this, Aparna? Did you like the slap, the Will Smith thing? What yeah, are your yeah. Thoughts? I, I just, I still just can't move past that headline. Fans are tired. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I, I, I've never, I've never like been a super, super fan of anyone. I just don't think I have that like personality quality to be like that obsessed with a person, but. I just the fact that you're like I've been supporting you and I'm just tired of what you're doing right now. <laughs> I can't take it no more. I yeah, I mean, I think no it's, because it's voluntary, more. right? Like you can walk yeah. away. Well, one of the things was like we just had the gossiping heifers on the show, and Ooh. they put out a post. They were like, "I feel like someone needs to tell Gabrielle Union and Jada Pinkett to just be don't do any more interviews." <laughs> Don't answer any more questions. <laughs> it is that thing of like, I think there's just, it's sort of like with uh, Taylor Swift too, right? Mm, it's like yeah, yeah, they yeah. are doing tactical things yes, to yes. promote. Like I would say like a partner, like you're just talking about some real stuff here to promote your book. You're not going to go and date like a football player and then go, hey, now read my book. Maybe that's what I need to be doing. <laughs> Which oh, oh, I just gave you I just gave you a suggestion. <laughs> I need a mentor and I need to date a football player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I as re- previously reported, Pinkett Smith has caused quite a stir this week with more of her juicy confessions. A few included the big reveal that she and husband of her two kids, Jaden and Willow Smith, have been separated. For seven years. So when the slap happened, they weren't even living together. They were separated, really. And Pinkett also claimed that during her and Smith's separation, her Madagascar co-star Chris Rock asked to take her out because he thought they were headed for a divorce. She ultimately denied Rock's request and notified him that the reports were simply rumors about the divorce of hers, I guess. Oh, it's like sometimes you got to use some things. You got to be like, that's a rumor, but I really don't want to be with you. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is adding a whole new element to the slap yeah. that we didn't have before. Well, he just stressed. He just he probably just stressed. Like it's just, you know, I have such a low tolerance for like drama. Like and st- like I'm like just I just have it in me. I can't even take drama in movies. I have to pause TV <laughs> shows and movies regularly. And just let the drama just settle down because I'm just, I feel it. I feel like I feel the drama comes through the screen. So I can't even imagine like being connected to someone because like the most part is Will. I mean, he had something to say after, you know, his situation, but I guess Will, you know, saying motivational, inspirational things, but like drama stuff, that wasn't a part of his mo or the way that he does things but like yeah the whole red talk and all of that i don't know I, you know what it is i got so much stuff happening in my life that i just you know and i tell people because there are people for whom it, i don't i want to say they're consumed by it but I, you know what i was going to say earlier i think what has mm-hmm. happened is that because of social media people feel a certain artificial kind of closeness Oh, the yeah, like to, the parasocial to, to people to the point yeah. that their identities start. Yeah. Like, like there are people who feel like Trump is they do. Like, like after he got indicted, probably the fourth time or whatever, there were people who literally went to HR and said, "Listen, can I expedite it? I need to debit immediately money from my hard-earned check to sit like." People whose identities are so wrapped mm-hmm. up in what they see on television that they almost feel like they're living vicariously through people. But I just I'm literally so busy and the work that I'm doing requires such a level of like I, I got to build myself up. Oh, so you don't use Jada Pinkett to, for your release? <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like it's it's like people use it to relax. That's what yeah, I'm noticing. Yeah, yeah. Is they're, but, but they're people like, have their different ways. It's a ways distraction. And, yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, however people are able to have their. It's kind of like the books. Like if you want to read about Jada Pinkett. <laughs> oh yeah, she is promoting a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want. This is what I want to ask you, Aparna. Going back to imposter syndrome, and which is interesting to me because I didn't even know like that was a term mm. until like maybe like five years ago. But it's been around since it says here 1978, I think. But I do think it's really been having a moment in like the past. People have been speaking. Well, yes. Let me just, I just want to ask a part of this. So why, because Alvin will take over. No, I love you, Alvin, but I just want to ask a part of this. Why is it like the past few years? Why do you think now it's become such a term? I mean, I think part of it is just like the openness now to talking about like your mental health and like what's going on internally versus, you know, what people are maybe seeing on the outside. Like, I feel like that's also been happening with just like therapy talk and like people talking about their trauma or like anxiety, depression, different mental health things. Like, I think that vulnerability aspect has, I don't know if it's like Gen Z necessarily, but there's like a trend, I think, of just 
putting that stuff more out there and like kind of leading with like, these are the ways in I would like to be seen that I feel are maybe were previously like shameful or embarrassing or something you don't want other people to know about. So I think that's part of it. But then also, yeah, I do think imposter syndrome in general is very targeted towards like the conversations are targeted towards kind of women and minorities and people in more marginalized groups where it's sort of like, well, obviously you should feel like you don't fit in. Like you probably feel this way. And that's, you know, partly because of like what I think one of the articles you sent was, which is like microaggressions, not seeing a lot of models of you represented in those spaces. Um, But yeah, I also think there's a, it's a little bit chicken and egg of like, now just being like, of course you don't fit in. You're different. Like, you know, it's like, that's weird if you're too confident. It's, yeah. yeah, it's it's a little uh, sometimes confusing. Like what, because I think workplaces are like trying to, you know, like the same thing with diversity where they're like, oh no, we're on it. Like we're addressing this. We like know it's here, but then it's like, are you, or are you just pointing out it's there and then being like, you go fix that on your own, like go to therapy or something. Whereas it's like something that's actually being caused by the system itself. And I feel like that pendulum of diversity is swinging slowly back. Like yes. they were doing a lot. And well, okay, sorry. I know it's the chopping yes. block because they saying it's the first, I was talking to someone and they were saying that diversity programs are usually the first to go and have yes. been the first to go. So I I know like in one of the interviews you said that the book was it like a cure or did it feel like I mean I don't know that's a weird way to put it but right getting it out I I used to do that with poetry just by getting it out almost feels like it it cures it but I would say what is, is that what's happening or what's the next phase for you with dealing with cured it like in some ways it sometimes made it hard like you know just gave it more space than I think it had before so in that ways it overcomplicated my life for a bit but I do think like at least getting it out and sort of being uh forced to face it head on was really useful in just realizing it's not like an objective truth it's like a part of me or like a voice in me that's very loud and like I've kind of you know, discovered some of the origins of it or like why it's so loud in me sometimes. And I think that that has offered some space that wasn't there before. But yeah, I w- unfortunately, it is not cured. Yes. I love that, that exploration. I love the story about you being young and your mom making you do, was it speech? Oh yeah, public speaking class. Public speaking yeah. Like I just see little Parney. Like was your mom like, get out there? Like how did yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. She was, was I mean, I was a really shy kid. I was honestly like, Alvin, you were talking about books in barbershops, and I'm like, yeah, put books everywhere. That would have been my dream as a kid. Just like let's all read and not have to talk to each other. Um <laughs> <laughs> so much more, yeah, manageable. But yeah, no, I think uh, my mom was very worried because I was a pretty shy, introverted kid. And she just was like, you're not going to be able to, you know, hack it in the world because she, you know, was an immigrant here. And, you know, American culture can be very outgoing and like, you know, extroverted. And like, you got to have that like sort of charisma and magnetism. And I think she was like, by any means necessary, we got to 
we got to figure out a way to get you out there. And that, I guess that's going to be public speaking classes as an 11-year-old. <laughs> I love it. And then I always hate this question, when you discover you were a comedian. <laughs> but when I read about you talking about Bollywood, mm. like that is something, do you do that ever in your act? I don't remember you ever roasting Bollywood like no no it was like an early my earliest form of comedian was as a you know low-key roaster and then I sort of walked away from that (laughs) I love it though because like you I think you talked about um well I'll let you say it well we're one of the because I love Bollywood and I it's my secret dream to be in a Bollywood film and dancing I love dancing. I went to Suba's wedding and I danced and she said we get to learn a dance. I was so excited. Oh, yeah. No, it's so fun. And I think I was, I made fun of them out of a place of kind of resentment because I don't speak Hindi, which is what most of, a lot of them are in. And uh, so my parents would have to like explain what was happening a lot of the time. And we were kind of like not given an option to watch anything else at home. So I think there was, you know, some built up anger there but I love Bollywood movies like wholeheartedly but there is a lot to make fun of in just that they're over the top there can't be so I just kind of you know took a, took I, a few you digs. You talked about the weather changing in oh, yeah, one. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> well during musical numbers you know it's like five different scenes five different <laughs> costumes like it's raining it's sunny it's winter it's summer <laughs> um, yeah I, it was it was done out of love. I love it. No, it's great. You got to be able to make fun of your own like yeah. you know, culture. That's what we do. That's what we bring to the... I would love to see it on stage, actually. I know you probably... Bollywood's probably like, no, you don't. <laughs> but we do have to come to a close. This has been an amazing conversation with both of you. I just think that, you know, literacy, stories that represent diversity are so important right now and you both represent that so thank you so much for coming on friends like us today i'll start with you alvin where can our listeners find you well you can find uh me around the country helping the babies read um but definitely you can find me on november the 8th at the museum of the city of new york celebrating barbershop books 10th year anniversary where you can also Find Marina bringing uh, some humor uh, to our supporters. Um, please visit our website, barbershopbooks.org, where you can find more information and possibly bring the Barbershop Books program to your area. With friends like us, um, you have space to have the space you need um, to be happy and healthy. Thank you. And that is true. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Aparni. Where can people find me? Yes, Aparna. Where can people find Um, you? I have a website that is soon to be revamped. So, uh, you know, if you want to stay abreast of that, you can just log on today. And then in a few weeks, it'll be totally different. But that's just AparnaComedy.com. And then I'm on... Instagram, I try to promote things. I'm not very good about it, but I'm trying to be better about it. I'm on, I guess, whatever Twitter is now, but I hope to, yeah, I hope that all winds down. And you're doing a book tour. And I'm, yeah, I'm in the middle of a book tour. So I have a few dates left, but I don't know what date. I'll be in Denver next. Ooh. Yeah. 
the place where marijuana was always available. That's true from day one. <laughs> and there's less oxygen, so it, it, it hits different. Okay, it's friends like us, you um, you can start the conversation with singing and we will embrace it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Aparna. Yes, we will. <laughs> yes. And Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can have amazing friends who are who encourage literacy in all types of diversity throughout your community. So pay attention. Get a partner's book. You want to read? I'm telling you, you guys rarely hear me say this. I'm a fan of this one, Aparna Nancherala. Also, Alvin, I'm a fan of yours too. <laughs> Appreciate. <laughs> but you know, you're on the you're on the show quite often, so I do have a book familiar. coming out later this year. Ooh. The Gingerbread Man on My Block. It's a modern urban retelling of the Gingerbread Man story. So. You know, it's a, it's he's been in in rural areas long enough. It's time to bring the gingerbread man to the block. So it's gonna be that's right a fun yeah. read for the holidays. <laughs> that is right. Thank you. Yeah. Check us out. Yeah. Thank you both so much. <laughs> <laughs>